to TLF Gems, a podcast about customer experience and insight from TLF Research. I'm Stephen Hampshire. I'm Greg Roche. And in this episode, in fact, over the next two episodes, we'll be featuring uh, an interview that I did with Chris Barnum, who's a sort of expert uh, qualitative researcher and particularly a semiotician. And in this first episode, what we'll do is, is just have sort of Chris explain uh, the history of semiotics um, and in particular his new theory of, of sort of how to use semiotics combined qualitative research to understand how customers make meaning from the communication that they see from brands. Really looking forward to hearing this Stephen. Uh, I know Chris has been doing it for over 20 years and you know is, is an absolute expert in, in, in this field. So I'm here with semiotician, qualitative researcher and author Chris Barnum. Uh, so Chris, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, what, what your background is in terms of, of qualitative research and how semiotics in particular fits into that? Yes, yeah, thanks, Stephen. I've, I've been a qualitative researcher for over 25 years, worked in various agencies, worked at my own agency for the last um, 20 years. And essentially, I've always had an interest in, in semiotics. I was interested in philosophy, did philosophy as a degree. Um, and then in the last five years, did a PhD at UCL on um, semiotics and semiotics theory. Um, and increasingly, I've discovered that semiotics and um, the theory of semiotics can be applied not just to the business of analyzing cultural codes, but also to the business of how consumers themselves make meaning. Um, and I've written a number of academic papers on, on the subject, um, most of them published in the IMJ, um, IMJR, the International um, Market Research Journal. Um, which is run by the MRS, but also um, in some academic journals as well. Um, and really what motivates me is the idea that you can put together qualitative research and semiotics in a much more integrated way. Um, obviously clients do qualitative projects, they do semiotics projects, and they do often run those alongside each other. Um, but seldom do they actually look at how consumers make meaning. Um, and one of the things that would be good to talk about today is exactly why we don't try and do that um, and what the ways through that problem are because there really is a case for saying that market research can analyze how consumers make meaning um, using semiotics because we're all semioticians we're semioticians every time we walk down the road or open a door or kind of open the drawer in the kitchen we we know what things mean um, so we're doing we're using semiotics all the time um, but curiously we either don't inquire how they do that or if we do use semiotics, we talk about it at a cultural level rather than an individual level. So one of, one of my firm beliefs is that there's a huge black hole in market research. And that, market, that black hole is very much about how, um, how and why consumers make meaning. Um, and it's curious, we just don't go there. We don't, we don't try and find out how consumers make meaning. And partly, that's because of our own marketing culture. We, we work in an area of work where um, marketing professionals, particularly our clients and their agencies, want to believe that they're the ones making the meaning. Um, and we tend to go along with that. Um, we tend to believe that consumers just receive meaning. They're like great big sponges who pick up meaning from the world around them. Or alternatively, consumers are a bit like dartboards and you just fire meaning at them and sometimes it sticks. Um, so we don't have a culture of really believing that meaning can be made by consumers. Now, I'm old enough and grey enough to remember a heyday of market research and planning when there was at least an, an inkling of a belief 
that you could find out the meaning of a brand in the consumer's head. Um, and that really was at the end of the 80s and in the 90s. And there really was a belief in those days, particularly amongst the planning community, that meaning, um, the meaning of brands existed in the consumer's head. And it was the job of market researchers, particularly qualitative researchers, to go out and find out what that reality was like. Um, so it wasn't a case, a case of kind of testing stuff or finding out what people think. These things called brands actually resided in, bra in the brains of people. Um, and you used to go and try and find out what they were about. Um, and that really was the age of brand equity studies. It was the age of brand audits. It was the age where you really did try and find out what the brand was doing in the, in the heads of consumers. And there was an underlying belief there that um, consumers made the brand. Now that, I'm afraid, has tended to kind of drift away in the last 20 years, that particular way of thinking. Well, we've reverted to the view that brands make brands and marketing agencies make brands and the consumer's just there to pick up the, um, the effects and the pieces from that. I think that's an awful lot to do with the decline of planning um, in advertising. It's also a lot, obviously, to do with the rise of the internet, which has kind of brought a whole load of people into the marketing world who just want kind of pop-ups on Facebook. And we're not really in a culture now where we're trying to understand how meaning is, is created. The other bit of the problem is actually market research itself. Quantitative researchers are obviously and clearly and, and very sensibly interested in what consumers think. Um, that's what quantitative researchers do. They count what consumers think. They count associations with brands. They count awareness. They count likes. They do all of those things, and they do that very well. Qualitative research, because it's clearly come from a kind of psychological background, is, has tended to be interested in why questions. So why do consumers think what they do? Why do they do what they do? Why do they have the attitudes that they do? And so we've got into a culture in qualitative research of looking for motivations, for looking for explanations, looking for reasons why somebody might think the way that they do. Um, and those reasons are often based on context, on experience, on childhood, on location, um, all sorts of things might determine why a consumer thinks the way they do. And what we don't do as qualitative researchers is think actually consumers are making meaning. How do they do it? Um, it's a complete kind of no-go area. We just don't, we don't look at how meaning is created. And that really leads to a kind of whole set of reasons why there is this black box um, in market research. Certainly when I, I talk to clients, I, I almost kind of explain it to them this way, that we've, we've got this fantastic industry of working out which cars go faster. We're very good at working out which cars go faster or can go around bends more efficiently but none of us seem to have a clue as to what creates the internal combustion engine um, and if only we could work out what made the internal combustion engine we could make a faster car um, and that's something that we just don't we just don't look at we don't try and understand that business of, of making meaning the other area that we just need to kind of cover off at that point is is semiotics and semiotics has obviously grown in the last 20 years in, in market research Ginny Valentine was a pioneer in that area um, but what semiotics has always been about has been looking at culture. Um, and often when you, when you listen to a semiotics debrief or a semiotics talk, the semiotician will talk about culture. And the reason for that is that there are two branches of semiotics. And, and the branch which has been predominant, certainly for the last 100 years in semiotics, has been cultural semiotics based on the semiotics of Ferdinand de Saussure and 
that way of thinking says, yes, we are interested in meaning. We are interested in how meaning is created, but only to the extent that a brand is using the cultural codes or the cultural resources which already exist out there in our culture. So semiotics, as it's kind of conventionally practiced in the UK and in, and in, the, in the kind of wider marketing world, is very much interested in how me meaning is made. But again, it doesn't go back to basics. It doesn't go back to the level of saying, well, how does this individual create meaning? What cultural semiotics tends to do is just say, well, this, this is how meanings which exist in society are being used by a brand. And then obviously semioticians look at the emergent codes, they look at the dominant codes, they look at the residual codes, but it's always working at a cultural level. And at a cultural level, what you can't then do is say, well, John in Nottingham is building the brand in this way. You can't get an understanding of why he thinks the way he does about Stella Artois um, or Guinness. All you can do is saying, well, these cultural codes are being used by the brand in a, in a particular way. So even kind of cultural semiotics doesn't quite get to opening the black box. It gets quite a long way there. Um, and certainly cultural semiotics is a great way of understanding how brands um, create meaning. But it doesn't explain how consumers make meaning. Um, and that really is, is the kind of the, the kind of Pandora's box, which if only we could open it, we could start to um, really create some traction. For, for semiotics. Now, I, I mentioned that there are two branches of semiotics. One is the Caesarian type, which has been the kind of the most popular in the last 50 years or so in, in semiotics. The other, ironically, is the older form of semiotics um, that was developed by a philosopher called Charles Peirce in the 19th century. He was an American philosopher um, and he created a semiotic model based on how individuals create meaning. Um, and it was Perse who, who I studied in my PhD. Um, and I quickly realized in the course of four years um, of, of doing my PhD that this was just enormously useful in terms of market research. The really interesting thing is that Persian semiotics in the academic world is really taking over from Caesarian semiotics. Um, we're, we're actually ironically and paradoxically behind the academic community here. Um, if you look at um, things like biosemiotics or edgy semiotics, which are kind of things I came across in my PhD, you'll find that most um, academics have long abandoned this year, realise that it's, it's based on a linguistic, a messaging model, rather than on a, um, a kind of creating the world and creating meaning model. Um, and they've already kind of moved on to Percy's way of looking at the world. So why is all of this important to market research? Obviously, brands are concepts. Um, brands are things which create meaning. Um, and so if only we could find a way of working out how consumers build concepts, we would understand how consumers build brands in their heads. Um, and that would explain an awful lot because then we could start to understand why some consumers think one way about a brand, why others think in other ways, and we would actually have a real, really good grasp of understanding what's wrong with a particular brand at a particular time, or how it can be improved, or I don't know, in international research when a particular brand is seen in a particular way, but completely different in, a, in another country, why on earth are they coming at it from a different angle? So there's, there's lots and lots to be gained in market research. If only we can work out how consumers build concepts and build brands. And doing that really allows us to overturn the kind of really rather kind of 1950s idea that brand communication is about messaging. Um, because we don't have a model of how consumers make meaning, 
we we sort of fall back on the um, on the position that believing that meaning comes from messaging. That if only we can send a message to consumers, they will get some meaning in their heads. Um, this way of thinking, this semiotic way of thinking, just doesn't go anywhere near a messaging mo model. We're not looking at how things are communicated. What we're looking at is how things are understood. Um, and that's really where the, where the action takes place. Um, so at the moment, we've got no mechanism for really understanding how consumers um, develop a concept, how far a concept has developed, because obviously if there's a process involved in developing a concept, some consumers have got further down that route than others. And certainly there's, there's lots to explore in terms of how a piece of brand communication, a piece of advertising or packaging might have been misconstrued. Um, and again, if we can understand what the process is of making the concept, we can understand whether the misconstrual has taken place. Um, of course, ironically, in qualitative research as professionals, we spend all of our time researching brand concepts. That's what we do for a living. But if you actually look at what we do, what we tend to do is say, well, which one is preferred? Which one's the least preferred? Which ones are most motivating? Which ones are least motivating? What we never really try and do is understand how those concepts are, are structured and how their meaning is formed. Um, so kind of concept research turns into a bit of a beauty, a beauty parade when actually what we could be trying to do is understanding how each, each concept is formed, how it's structured and how its meaning is created. So what we've got here with the, the semiotics of purse is a potential way to understand how meaning is made in the mind of the consumer. And what is great about that is it actually means you need to talk to consumers because that's where the kind of the activity is taking place. We're not reliant so much on a semiotician just looking at cultural codes on their kind of, when they Google images. Um, what we're doing is actually talking to consumers about how they, how they see brands and how they actually build concepts. And there's, there's some kind of methodologies I'll talk about in a minute in terms of how we do that. But what we've potentially got here is a new discipline within market research. I, I've, I call it qualitative semiotics, um, which I know for some people might be confusing because they think they're doing it already. But this really is trying to combine qualitative research with semiotics and work out how consumers are operating as semioticians. So if we move on to kind of Peirce and how he sees meaning being created, it's a huge subject. Um, people have written thousands and thousands of pages on Peirce in terms of how his, his theory works, but you can essentially boil it down to three or four stages in terms of concept formation. Um, and probably the best way to think about it is in terms of an example. So if you go into a bar in, I don't know, the Czech Republic, and you see a bottle of beer on the back of the bar, which you've never seen before, um, what you will then go through is a process of understanding what that brand is about. Um, and that's essentially Peirce's model of, of meaning making. Um, so what Peirce argues is that to begin with, what you do is you just see that bottle of beer as a vague perception. You know it's a bottle, you probably guess it's a beer, maybe it doesn't even look sufficiently like a beer to be classified by you as a beer. But essentially he says what you start with is a vague perception. You then make a guess at what sort of product it is, whether it's a beer or, or maybe um, a, a kind of a, a fruit drink or something. You work out what kind of beer it is and you do that on the basis of your other experience of beers in the world. So what you're doing is actually classifying this bottle um, as, as a type of product and you're turning it into an identity. Now you do that, Peirce argues, on the basis of similarity. You do it on the basis of similar things that you've seen before. 
Um, and what he calls that um, identity when you formed it, he calls it an icon, um, which is based on similarity. When you form that identity, you then, as you start to either drink it or, or kind of talk to your friends about it or see it in other bars, you start to actually build a picture of what this beer is about. And importantly, you understand how it interacts with the world. Um, Peirce actually calls this the indexical stage. Um, and what you then find out is kind of who drinks it, where you find it, how much it costs, what it tastes like, all the different attributes of this product, which can be either be product attributes or, or kind of associations in the mind. All of these attributes, and this is a really important word for, for Peirce, all of these attributes then qualify the beer and position it relative to other beers. So as you find out things about this beer, you start to find out how it's similar to other beers in the market, but also how it's different to other additional beers in the market. You start to actually put it in a world of beers and position it um, in much the way that we, 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 we understand it within marketing. For Perth, there's then a third and final stage of concept development. At this point, what you've got is an identity with some indexical associations. For Peirce, the, the third stage um, is when this concept is um, what he calls sublated. Now, sublation is something that only philosophers tend to come across. Um, it's a technical term, and what it really means is being lifted up from under. Um, now, what Peirce means by this is that suddenly the idea of this beer, it flips on its head. Initially, it's an identity with a set of associations. When the concept is sublated, what happens is that the associations become signs of the identity. So to take an example, um, let's say this beer has got a particularly kind of golden crown on the label. When you see that golden crown on another occasion, in the absence of the brand name, you might well recognise that it's the beer. At that point, sublation has taken place. And of course, what's happened then is that the golden crown that you've seen on the bottle has become a symbol of the brand. An example I use again with um, clients when I talk about this, we all know what a yellow taxi looks like in New York, but we also know that if we see a, a, a yellow taxi out of context, it will immediately remind us of New York. So at that point, the yellow taxi has become a symbol of New York. It's been sublated. So this is a really important stage in the marketing process and the branding process, because if you can actually get to this stage, the consumer starts to realize that the brand is a symbol rather than just a name with a collection of values associated with it. Um, and lots of brands, particularly in their early days when they're launched as, as new entrants in the market, tend to be products with names associated with them. What they haven't reached is the stage where they've been sublated into brands. Um, so you, you get to the point with sublation where something is more than just a name with a, with a, a product attached to it. A good example in the, um, in the beer market, if you go into a pub called the Red Lion, um, you never for once think, of course, that the Red Lion is a brand name. It's just the name of the pub. You've got a building with a name attached to it. Sublation takes place and brands are created when actually a symbol is created and the pub is just a building, it's not a symbol. So what are the um, advantages, advantages of all of this for qualitative research? Well, what it means is that we can actually sit down with consumers and the best way to do this is in either in paired depths or in depths. It's very, very difficult to do it in groups effectively. Um, you can actually sit down with them and start to work out where they are on this journey to concept formation. You can do all sorts of things that we already do as market researchers with them. We can start to get them to map things, to classify things, to talk about what sort of thing something is and find out exactly what sort of identities they're using. 
But then the other thing you can do is then get them to talk about whether it is actually a sublated um, symbol. Do they actually recognize elements of the brand in, in, independently of the, of the packaging or the product that they experience and work out, and we can work out whether this brand actually is a brand or just a name attached to a product. Lots of these things are, are things that we do already. The mapping particularly is something I always tend to do um, in, in groups because it just helps you so much in terms of understanding how a consumer sees a particular brand. But there are definitely new techniques that Purse allows us to introduce here. If we go back to the idea of qualification, um, what I said earlier on was that when you get to the indexical stage, what you have is an identity which is then qualified by things um, that you then associate with that identity. Now apply that model to a piece of packaging apply that model to a piece of advertising. And you can start to think about that piece of advertising, for example, in a completely different way. Every advert has an identity or indeed several identities within it. It might be the drinker, it might be the, um, the product itself, it might be the kind of the location in which it's shot. There are identities in advertising. And each of those identities are then qualified by everything else that the consumer sees in the ad. So um, let's say we've got a, a kind of a lead character in an ad. He's going to be qualified by the room he's sitting in or the car he's sitting in or what the weather is like outside or what his wife looks like or what his children are up to. What you've got is a whole series of qualifications going on. And I've, over the years, found this an, an enormously kind of powerful way of thinking about advertising. Rather than talking to consumers about what a particular piece of advertising says to them or what it communicates, what you start to do is talk to them about how um, the brand, the advertising is actually structured in terms of qualification. Um, and you can do this by getting them to talk about, well, how do all of these aspects of the ad qualify this part of the ad? And then you choose another part of the ad and say, right, how do all of these other aspects of the ad qualify that part of the ad? So you really can, in a huge amount of detail, start to go around the ad and work out how each of the elements start to qualify each other. It's hugely powerful, it works really well, and you get a really good understanding um, of how the advertising is working at the end. The other hugely powerful piece of um, methodology that I've taken out from Purse is the idea of propositional hierarchy. I've, I've used it um, or written about it on, in, in several papers in the IJMR, um, and it is a hugely kind of useful way of how, thinking about how a brand creates meaning. If we go back to the original model that Peirce was suggesting, what you have essentially is an identity and then a series of identity, a series of qualifications of that identity. Now, the, the, the critical thing is what has the consumer taken out of the brand, which is the initial identity? So let's take Stella Artois, for instance. You start with Stella Artois is um, a French lager or a Belgium lager, and then you qualify that. You're going to get into one kind of set of associations for Stella Artois. If you start with Stella Artois as wife beater, and then you kind of come across its other associations, you're going to end up in a different place. So what's absolutely critical is the propositional hierarchy in which a brand is structured. Um, and what you find, and I've discovered over the years, is that when you talk to consumers, they can be talking about the same brand, but have completely different propositional structures, hierarchies for that brand. Um, so the very kind of straightforward and easy way to find out how they're structure, structuring the brand 
is say for example to take four or five values which they um, associate with that brand and get them to put them in, a, in what I call a propositional hierarchy. So which is the one that they think of most of all, and then get the others um, in some sort of order in terms of how they qualify that initial identity. And you'll find, I don't know, if you talk about carling with consumers, if you talk to kind of consumers in London about carling, they'll probably say it's a Northern Lager, um, and then they will qualify a Northern Lager for you. Um, if you start with carling in um, the northeast of England, you'll, you'll find that they're talking about it um, as our lager or, or British lager, and then you qualify that. So what you can often find um, by taking consumers through this kind of quite practical process is work out how they're structuring the brand in a series of qualifications. You can find out what the initial identity is, and then you can find out how they qualify the brand in turn. Um, and so what you find interestingly is every brand tends to have a hierarchy in within its structure um, and some elements of that hierarchy are kind of submerged down the bottom um, and others have risen to the top some in a good way some in a bad way Stella's a really good example of how a bad bit of the brand its its strength compared with other lagers got to the top of the propositional hierarchy um, when I was at Whitbread in the 1980s, we always knew that 5% ABV was a bit of an issue and that it could lead to all sorts of negative associations with the brand. So we didn't talk about it as a, as a company. We tended to talk about its sophistication and its European heritage. Um, in the 1990s, that changed. The, the ABV of the brand became the thing it was known for. And so the 5% ABV moved from being quite low down in the propositional hierarchy to being quite high. And of course, that completely changed the meaning of the brand. Now, the, the important thing is, of course, the 5% ABV of Stella Artois was always there. It was always in the brand. Um, what happened was that the propositional hierarchy changed. And interestingly, in the last 10, 15 years, of course, Stella has tried to move it back down the propositional hierarchy again. Um, and again, they talk about sophistication, they talk about the femininity of the brand, and they talk about its, its European values. So what propositional hierarchy does is illustrate something which um, I'm sure everyone listening to this recognises, is, um, is the kind of sketch that Eric Morecambe did with André Previn in the 1970s, when they were talking about the kind of the notes to the Greek piano concerto, and Eric Morecambe said that actually he was playing all the right notes, but not necessarily in the all the right all the right notes, but not necessarily in the right order. Brands are doing exactly the same. Quite often, what they're doing is playing all the right notes, but not necessarily in the right order. Um, and by getting the order wrong, you still get the meaning wrong. Um, and so, millions and millions of pounds are often spent by brands trying to change the meaning of their brand. But actually, what they ought to be trying to do is change the propositional hierarchy of the brand. Um, and that genuinely is a, is a, generally is a much cheaper and easier way of doing it. So what we've got here is a really very powerful way of understanding how consumers make meaning, how meaning changes. It's, it's a dynamic model of, of making meaning. What you tend to find within kind of conventional cultural semiotics is quite a fixed way of think, talking about meaning because the, the meanings are defined by culture and that moves quite slowly. Um, but this is a model of meaning making which is really dynamic, it's very flexible and even within the course of a piece of market research you can see consumers changing how they understand the brand and, and what it means to them because suddenly they've realised that the propositional hierarchy has changed. You find this, I don't know, um, 
all the time when you talk if you talk to consumers about a yogurt they might think it's a high fat yogurt but if they discover in the course of the discussion but it's also um, probiotic they might well change how they understand the, the brand they will change um, the propositional hierarchy and that will change its meaning so this is a, a really I find very interesting potentially very powerful way of developing market research it enables us to merge both qualitative research practice and semiotics um, at the moment they tend to work in parallel with each other but actually um, they could be much more integrated um, it really does focus on what I think is a black hole, a black box within market research, which is this whole business of how meaning is made. Um, and it's about time, really, that the qualitative research industry said, look, we can explain to clients how meaning is made. Um, it's not something that's made in the advertising agency or the design agency or the PR agency. Um, meaning is made by consumers. That's where the action takes place. Um, and if we can understand that process, then it will go some way to kind of raising the status of qualitative research and indeed of semiotics um, and giving a much, us a much kind of greater handle on, on what brands are up to and how we can enhance their performance. Thanks for that, Chris. That was a very comprehensive overview of what you were going to talk about. Yes, well, that, that really was very, very interesting. I mean, uh, as Chris really, really knows his stuff, and and one of the things I quite liked about that is there's a real mixture there of the theory and in some ways the history of, of semiotics as well. But I think the real takeout for me, Stephen, is meaning is made by consumers, and it just so obviously is. So why do we just miss that? And I know later I'm going to talk a little bit about how that fits into the world of customer experience, but just that idea that it's, it's so obvious, isn't it? But it, it's such a good point that customers make the meaning. Absolutely. And as, as you're saying, it, it's totally applicable to, to customer experience in, yeah, as, w as well as in marketing. But yeah, the idea that what matters is not the message you send out, but the way the message is understood. As you say, it's obvious as soon as you articulate it, and yet all of the emphasis of marketing is on the messages we're transmitting. And yeah, customers can get it wrong, but they have no active part to play in constructing a meaning uh, in, in most marketing people's heads, I guess. And similarly, I think with customer experience, you know, customers can click the wrong button on the website, um, they can make a mistake, but they don't have an active role in constructing the customer journey. Um, so I think there are very close parallels there. Yeah, and I, I like the way he brought out the how and the why to um, to it. But the other thing, which I had not really sort of thought too much about, but I really like the way that, that Chris look, look, looked at the how and why uh, uh, as well of sort of the consumers making making meaning. One of the things I thought was really quite interesting, I've not really sort of thought about it before, was him talking about symbols and brands, whether it's the yellow taxi in New York, the crown on the beer, um, or the Red Lion pub and the different um, the different sort of examples of, of, of those. And I sort of never really sort of thought about that positioning again, but it just makes you realize there is so much invisible transmitting that you don't realize. Yeah, absolutely. And often sort of unwanted transmitting. And he, may, he, he talks about beer a lot, doesn't he? Which, which um, I, I suppose is probably his history of, of brands. <laughs> Perhaps he'd sussed out the audience he was talking to, Stephen, and you, and was really transmitting very well. 
Yeah. So yeah, the, the kind of the, the associations you might want as a beer brand, and some other associations you might not want. And I suppose another, if we if we were to put beer to one side for now, if you think of Burberry as a brand that you know had and probably wanted all these kind of aspirational luxury associations. And then for a period in, in, I guess, the early 2000s becomes associated with essentially football hooligans. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> and how do you get back from that is a really interesting challenge, I think. Yeah. Well, really interested to see how in the second part we bring the link into the customer experience, which is obviously a really good you know, example. That's one of the prime examples of how, how, how semiotics works. Well, thank you very much for listening, everyone. Hopefully see you again for our discussion about semiotics and the customer experience. If you're using iTunes, please subscribe, rate and review us. And if you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at TLF Research or at TLFresearch.com. Cheers, everyone.